0: the dark days are done, and the bright days are here, my sunny one shines so sincere, sunny one so true, i guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is John Barber. Welcome to John Barber's World, live from Las Vegas. That was Sarita singing Sunny, and Frank Sinatra saying here's Johnny the night he hosted the Tonight Show. In the 60s and 70s, I was a huge fan of the political parodies sung by Tom Lehrer, an expression of truth through humor and mu- music. Sadly, now missing in America. Yesterday though, I tried to revive that by a by a bit of a song parody that I posted on Facebook. And it's about uh, the news-making affair of Donald Trump with Stormy Daniels. Now, to many, it is really, really funny. But to others, quite honestly, like my sister, it is very offensive. Now, some were upset at me because no president since Nixon has evoked so much divisiveness in this country, as has the election of Donald Trump. And they reminded me, the trumpeters, that JFK was also a bedbug. In the 60s, when I was a rising young comic, as they say, working The Hungry Eye in San Francisco, I was the only comic in the country, including Mort Saul, who did jokes openly about JFK's philandering, which is probably how he got his bad back. The truth is. JFK's humping hobby, like Trump's, has nothing to do with how they run their office. As a matter of fact, it's a hobby which may help them do a better job. It's a lot faster than Ike's or Obama's golf or Nixon's or Bush's bowling, and certainly not as frustrating. What is frustrating is to see the wit and humor and intelligence and truthful civil discourse has vanished from America like the buffalo. What has also vanished are real heroes, all shot down or put down. The majority of Americans are so into fantasy over fact, they will now pay over $100 to get into Disneyland, but won't walk into a free library. But for the minority who do this show, and our guests tonight, a real hero, are for you. I have had some of the brightest people in our country on our show, producer Norman Lear, writer Harlan Ellison, author essayist Chris Hedges, former Reagan aide Paul Craig Roberts, comedians Tim Conway and Gallagher, and dozens and dozens of others. But I must tell you, honestly, no guest beforehand has he built so much interest and appreciation as my guest tonight. My inbox is full of scores of thank you, John, notes from as far away as Romania and Thailand. What Ralph Nader did for American consumers of products, this one-of-a-kind people's advocate did for American consumers of political and legal truth. In his eye-opening, mind-expanding book, The People's Advocate, you'll discover his legal actions brought to light the truths behind the stories that shaped our recent history. Watergate, the Pentagon Papers, Iran-Contra, the murder of Karen Silkwood. He is the founder of the Christic Institute and now heavily involved in the Lakota People's Law Project, helping them save their land and save their children not just sitting in his office but standing beside them it is an honor to welcome the people's advocate daniel sheehan daniel thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show
1: thank you john i appreciate it it's a it's always good to get a break and get to talk to people around the country uh instead of just having to confine my discussions to a particular courtroom up in north dakota
0: Well, I must tell you, I was quite frank. I'm very well aware of you, of course, but I was astounded to get the number of emails and Facebook messages that I got when it was announced that I was going to book you on the show. When you couldn't make it a couple of weeks ago, they thought <laughs> I was they thought I was bluffing. Anyway, uh, what I would like mm-hmm. to know is a little bit about where you were born, how you were raised, and what your family was like. Could you tell well, me?
1: Sure. You know, I was i was born, actually. I, I turn out to be the youngest person you'll probably ever meet who was alive when Franklin Roosevelt was still present. Uh, oh, my! He, he, he died three days after I was born on April 9th of 1945. He died uh, on the 12th, uh, and it was just 100 days before the detonation of the first atomic bomb uh, out of oh, White uh. Sands. So I, I came in uh, as part of the senior class of the baby boomers, you know, that uh, that we were all born in that 21-year period leading up to and coming to uh, a, uh, an unfortunate end on November 22nd of 1963 with the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, our whole generation of 82 million people in the United States, was born during that 21-year period. And so that sets the sort of larger context of, of the whole era in which I've practiced law. And uh, my father uh, was a prison guard at Great Meadows Prison up in northern New York, north of Lake George. Oh my. Uh, it's a big 32-mile lake. It's just about 90 miles south of the Canadian border, right up by the six Indian nations, the, uh, the so-called Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, that's that's where I grew up. And my father was an, uh, a guard at the prison where Lucky Luciano uh, was housed after he was convicted oh uh, of uh, white-collar crimes by Thomas Dewey when Tom Dewey was the DA down in New York City. And Tom Dewey, when he was running to be the uh, Republican, he was a Republican nominee for president uh, running uh, uh, against uh, against Truman, who had become president right after Franklin Roosevelt died. And uh, and, uh, Tom Dewey sent a a person, an assistant district attorney from New York uh, by the name of Murray Gerfine, sent him up to Great Meadows Prison to negotiate with Lucky Luciano to release Lucky Luciano from prison uh, on the condition that he would go back to Italy and would organize the mafia to serve as scouts. For the landing uh, at Sicily, and Sicily, wow. uh, at the, uh, in the, turns out my father was involved in the landing uh, at Salerno. Uh, the the oh two landings were Salerno at, Sal- at Salerno and Anzio, two very famous battles in the World War. And uh, my father was seriously wounded in the landings uh, at Mount Pontano in Italy, and came back to the United States and was in was in the as a prison guard uh at the prison because he was a wounded veteran given preference and being hired and so he was there and that was the prison where lucky luciano was released from to go to go back to italy and organize the mafia to be the scouts for the la- for the landing party that was coming in and of course what else, what they what they did is in addition to agreeing to be scouts for the for the us landing uh in in sicily they also agreed to infiltrate the uh, the Teamsters Union, in the Longshoremen's Union, the Mafia, oh my. to keep them from becoming well, the well, communists. Daniel,
0: when, when you were when of you course. were a youngster, uh, you know, probably before you learned all of this really interesting stuff. Yeah. What were you interested in playing for the New York Yankees or doing something other than that you? Well, I
1: no, I was going to be an astronaut. Uh, that, uh, I, I planned to be an astronaut. I was going to go to the United States Air Force Academy and, uh, and get into the astronaut program and plan to, you know, get to, uh, explore outer space and to reach out to, this. I knew this was going to be the extraordinary generation. It was going to take the first step out into the stars. And so I wanted to be, wow. be directly involved in that. And so I ended up being the, number one uh, candidate in the state of New York uh, qualifying for the Air Force Academy oh, so I got, now uh, was, w- was yeah. it
0: was it was it a person was it a book or was it a film or was it not becoming the number one candidate from New York to go into space that made you decide to get into law
1: well what, what it was is when when I went down to, because I was the number one candidate, I went down to be interviewed by by Jacob Javits, Jacob Javits and Kenneth Keating were the two United States senators, and Jacob Javits interviewed me. And after about ten minutes into the interview, uh, he kind of admitted to me that he was shocked that uh, that I was as qualified as I was because he had already given the appointment to someone else who was the son of one of his major contributors, and so he <laughs> apologized and offered me the appointment to uh, the Naval Academy. And I told him I wasn't into boats, I was into airplanes, and I wanted <laughs> to be an astronaut. And so he said, don't worry, you can just go back and get your appointment from your congressman. Uh, and it turns out the congressman gave the appointment to the son of the, the Republican son of the mayor of Glens Falls, New York. So I was astonished that the system wasn't working correctly, and I said, "I said this is this is outrageous." You know, I've done all this effort to get to go to the Air Force Academy, become an astronaut, and they end up appointing these the two political goons to to the academy. And so I said, "I'm going to have to be a lawyer," and I, I I figured that I'd spend a few years helping to get the get the, uh, the legal system retuned so that things were working effectively. Oh, I my God. Our, le- is... our, legal system, our legal system was out of tune, but I discovered after a few years of being a lawyer that our legal system wasn't out of tune. It was playing a completely different song than we had been taught, you know, in in high school civics and stuff about how the Constitution was obeyed and how the people respected the rule of law, etc. I realized that, our legal system had become totally corrupted. And so I spent my time uh, in law school. I was the co-founder along with Mark Green out of New York of the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review. Uh, oh my. We, founded the, we founded the Civil Rights Law Review and I handled the part where lawyers would write in from around the country with major constitutional cases that we could then work on. Because I wanted the law review to be not just an academic abstract discussion, I wanted it to actually help instruct young lawyers on how to do major civil rights cases. So
0: You were just a student at the time. First of all, if anybody reads yeah. your book and knows about you, you were as meant for the law as John Lennon was meant to be a, a musician. I mean, it's like you were built for this. But now you're just a young man and you're a young lawyer. Now, don't most – Lawyers when they graduate, even if they especially if they graduate from Harvard Law School, don't they have to end up earning a living by joining a bigger firm, a huge firm?
1: Well, actually the, the irony of it is, is that that I that I initiated the case at on the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review that ended up establishing the right of journalists to protect their confidential news sources. It became quite famous as a journalist news privilege. And uh, therefore, I was recruited immediately by the number one Wall Street litigation law firm that represented NBC News. So I went down there to do that case in the Supreme Court. And that's why I was there when our firm was uh, was contacted by the New York Times to represent them over the Pentagon Papers case. I was in fact the person who got called. I was the lawyer that got called by the New York Times to help defend them. And so that, uh, I did the two, the first two cases I did coming out of law school were the case that established the right of journalists to protect their confidential news sources and the Pentagon Papers for the New York Times. So, so I did go to the big number one law firm. It was the number one law firm that all, all the lawyers from Harvard Law School and Yale Law School want to go to. So I happened to. To get it in a strange way, so I ended up being at that big law firm, and was there for two two full years. Was there at Attica Prison the night everybody was killed up at Attica Prison that night, and I did a, a whole series of other cases while I was there at the law firm, and then I got recruited by F. Lee Bailey's office to come and join the firm at F. Lee Bailey's office to when they got hired to defend uh, McCord James and McCord, who was the Watergate burglar. So we did oh, the Watergate burglary case, and it was it was our client uh, James McCord who wrote the letter to Judge Sirica blowing the whistle on Richard Nixon, uh, and the plumbers. Uh, so that's oh. so I was there. I was there for uh, that whole time during the Watergate burglary case. Uh, now, this now this, I, this,
0: this, yeah. this is very, very heady stuff for a young man who doesn't become an astronaut. And he's going to get even by changing the legal system. Now you get involved with the biggest corporations in America, the New York Times. You get involved with the biggest law firms. Did you then get a deeper insight into how unfair and rigged the system is? Well,
1: sure. That that's That's where I found it out. That's where I got to see. I got to see all 47 volumes of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, and even only portions of them were actually printed in the New York Times. I got to see all of them, to see all about the, the covert assassination program, the Phoenix program. I got to see all about the, the heroin smuggling that was going on covertly to help fund the Phoenix program, the massive assassination program in Southeast Asia. I got to see all of that stuff. And then when I went over to, L, to Lee Bailey's office, I got the inside scoop on what was going on at the Watergate burglary, why they why they burglarized the office of uh, Larry O'Brien, what, what it is they were looking for. And it all related directly to the assassination of President Kennedy. Only nobody knows that. Uh, well, but, you know, so I, 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 I'll tell
0: you an yeah. interesting sidebar about this. Back in the late 70s, I had to fill in on the morning show, Chicago A.M., And one of Nixon's speechwriters, I can't recall his name, but he wrote about his experiences with Nixon. I read his entire book before he came on the show, and there were two sentences in the book. And and we spent the whole hour talking about those two sentences. And it's just what you said right now. He said he had the feeling that the break-in was over the fact that Larry O'Brien, who was head of the Democratic Party, because there was no threat from George McGovern and the Republicans. Right. is that it was Larry O'Brien in Las Vegas with the hoods and the CIA putting the hit together on Castro that may have backfired. And he only that's had two exactly sentences right. of that in the book, and you were the first person I've ever heard say that outside of that book.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's the story. That was exactly what it was, because it turns out F. Lee Bailey was the attorney for Santos Traficante. And Santos oh Traficante my, no. is the guy that put together the assassination team for Richard Nixon, to assassinate Fidel Castro, and that was the group that turned 180 degrees and assassinated President Kennedy in November of 1963. And I learned all of that uh, in my third year out of law school. And so I I realized that that it was so disillusioning to discover what was really going on that uh, I ended up going back to Harvard to do my master's work and start my PhD work in comparative social ethics. So I was—I uh, realized that that I, that I was like a ship passing in the night from the the, you, you know of the big
0: law firm. You—you you must have been absolutely and totally shattered by the myth that it was America the Beautiful. You know, when I interviewed Jim Garrison, uh, Jim Garrison did his only interview in ten years with me after he lost the Clay Shaw. Trial because I tried a couple of times to book him on network television shows and I was fired and, and he was canceled. And at one point I said to him, Mr. Garrison, you're a former FBI agent. You're an independent. You were at Dachau when they liberated that camp at the end of the war. Whatever made you think that you could take on the federal government? And Daniel, without missing a beat, he said, John, I guess as a kid I saw one too many Frank Capra movies.
1: You know? well, the, well, that's 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 actually a part of what, what caused me to do the kind of things that I did. I used to spend uh, lots of time. My, my father ended up becoming an alcoholic, and my mother used to bring uh, the three of us children uh, to the movies on Friday night to avoid having a big confrontation with him when he came home. So um. I would always go to the movies and see these double features, and I always thought, that that's how we were supposed to act, you know, if we were confronted by a, a, a gross injustice, we were all supposed to conduct ourselves as though we were heroes, you know, just like Gary Cooper in High Noon or, you know, Burt Lancaster as the lawman. Jimmy Stewart. You know, we were supposed. To, yeah, you were supposed to step up and do the right thing. In the in in the movies, they always won. And so you, this, you know, I was you curious, might
0: you you might appreciate this. My mentor when I started out, believe it or not was Red Fox, And Red Fox once said he said, he said, Daniel, he said, heroes ain't born. They're cornered. And, you know,
2: you were cornered.
0: It's like Jim Garrison was cornered when he accidentally met Hale Boggs, who told him that there was no way that Oswald could have done that. And you were cornered by discovering at such a young age that the whole system was rigged. So you had to go back to Harvard to rebuild yourself. I read. That's right. That you That's then right. got involved with with a law firm that got upset at you because you spent half your time doing pro bono work.
1: That's right. I I was I was authorized to spend fifty percent of my time doing public interest work. And the problem the problem was that was at Cahill where I did the Pentagon Papers case and the right of journalists to protect their news sources they want they so desperately wanted me to come to that law firm because the NBC television journalist uh, Pappas uh who who I represented and argued that he had this constitutional right to protect his sources he had been turned down by the lawyers for NBC including the Cahill firm on Wall Street saying there was no such right and therefore they wouldn't argue the case for him so I'm the one that put together the briefs and made the argument to the to oh the court, and went all the way. And so that because it got to the United States Supreme Court, the the big law st- law firm on Wall Street wanted to take the case because it's worth a million dollars. And so they sent recruiters to Harvard Law School to recruit me right out of the law school to come to join their firm because he insisted that I do the case for him in the Supreme Court.
0: Wow! So that's what? that's what? how
1: that's how I got there well I had a right to demand that I get to spend half my time doing public interest cases,
0: which they agreed well, to i'm going to put i'm going to put for one question your career unbelievable impressive career on hold and I have to ask you this question was it difficult for you to meet and marry someone?
1: Well, no, I wasn't. I w- I didn't have any such intention. I was just working away doing all of the stuff that I was doing, and I got contact when I was at the Jesuit National Headquarters. I got contacted by the National Organization for Women who were, rep- who were trying to get someone to investigate the murder of Karen Silkwood uh, up oh, in Oklahoma nice. at that nuclear facility. So they came and asked me if I would agree to do this, and so they said uh, Sarah Nelson, who is the labor secretary for the National Organization for Women? Is going to be making a presentation over at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington D.C. Uh, why don't you come over there and listen to this and decide whether you want to help them? And so I was there when Sarah walked in, uh, came swooping in and made this presentation to the entire assembled uh, group there at the Institute for Policy Studies, and I said, "Holy mackerel! This is a, this is pretty much pretty astonishing." And I was so then I went around and told all of the different women that I was going out with that I wanted to be friends with them and didn't want to have them feel bad about this, but I'd met this woman, and that I wasn't going to be going out with any other women after that and so uh, i I hadn't even talked to Sarah yet. I had just seen her, and then it turns out that two weeks later I was delivering a, a speech at the uh, at the uh, one ten Maryland Avenue, the National Council churches. I was delivering a big speech about S-1, the big Senate bill that Nixon had had, uh, had Rehnquist draft up to amend all the federal criminal statutes to basically have a fascist dimension to them. And I was delivering this big lecture, and she walked into the room, and uh, I was hoping I was going to get a chance to talk to her. But uh, when I got done with the talk, I looked around and I couldn't find her, and it turns out she was standing right next to me. Oh and she, said, uh, she said, "She uh, you are 'You're you're Danny Sheehan, right? You're the one that now has asked to be the lawyer for Karen Silkwood.'" I said, "Yes." And she said, "Would you come to church with me tonight? I've got to go. My brother wants me to go to this <laughs> church. so I have to go do that. Would you come with me to church?" I said, "Absolutely." Uh, <laughs> and that was it. So, uh, oh my so, Sarah, so Sarah and I have been Sarah and I have been working together as partners on all of these cases for over forty years she does all the public oh. education, grassroots organizing, runs our entire shop. You know, we the Christian Institute, we had 55 full-time employees. You know, we had offices in Washington D.C. that did all the national security cases. We had a we had an office up in Portland, Oregon that did the the environmental stuff. We had the the office down in uh, North Carolina uh that did the civil rights cases. We Well, I must the Daniel, I Nazi must party. tell you
0: uh, and I presume now you have children?
1: Yeah, we have two boys. They're Danny, Paul, and Dagan. You know, we've been we've been together for 40 years now.
0: Well, I must tell you, that is a feel-good movie. That's a movie in <laughs> itself. That is terrific. Okay, now, Daniel Sheehan is this guy who accident- accidentally meets this terrific lady who becomes her lifelong partner now. You're this fellow that's fighting for the underdog, there is nothing more underdog in, in America than how this country has for 100 years or more mistreated the Indians. How did you get involved in this well, uh, Lakota People's Law Project? Well,
1: uh, actually, it started uh, back when I was in F. Lee Bailey's office back in 1973 when we were doing the Watergate burglary case a good friend of mine from, uh, from Harvard Law School who was a classmate of mine, uh, Joe Durham. Uh, he, when he graduated, he went out to Denver, Colorado, uh, and joined the big firm of Holland and & Hart, and what they did is they volunteered him to be legal counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union as their pro bono activity. And he ended up being the legal counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union for the whole 10-state region around the Rocky Mountains. And the, that's when the wounded knee occupation started taking place. So he called me rather desperately uh, at Eppley Bailey's office, from all the way out in Denver, pleading with me to please come uh, take a take a short vacation from Bailey's office and come out and help him uh, because the the American Indian movement had just occupied Wounded Knee and they, that uh, the assistant attorney general, Bill Jenklo, had called in the Nixon administration, and they were totally surrounded with tanks and armored personnel carriers and sharpshooters and the whole nine yards, and they needed to have legal counsel. So he, I flew out and, uh, and became uh, chief, of, chief of litigation for the American Civil Liberties Union at the Wounded Knee Trials. And so we did the amicus briefs uh, to the court that ended up getting all the charges dismissed, Against the leadership of the American Indian Movement, and then I went back to uh, back to the to uh, F. Lee Bailey's office. But because of that stint, I I was made uh, co-counsel with Joe Durham for the Native American Rights Committee for ACLU National. So years later, I was contacted when all of a sudden out of South Dakota. Uh, some 740 young Native American kids every single year were being taken away from their their Native American parents, from their grandmothers and aunties and uncles.
0: Why? From why their would, entire why tribe? They, why would they yeah. be taken away?
1: Well, because as it turns out, the George W. Bush administration has set up this policy of giving up to seventy nine thousand dollars per child per year. Uh, if they took a Native American child away from their parents and put them into white foster care because they were declaring all of them to be special needs children. And so they sent oh federal money. God. And it turns out they were using, the Republican Party was using that money to basically subsidize uh, the election of right-wing Republicans. It was a whole oh point that was God. set up out of South Dakota, and they transformed South Dakota and North Dakota, who had all Democratic uh, senators and, and democratic uh, Congress people, uh, in a short period of time, they ran them all out of office and took over. Uh, and we walked into that. I got contacted to say to, by the grandmothers out of South Dakota to say, "Look, we're missing over seven hundred children a year are being taken away and disappeared into the white foster care system. Would you come up here as the former legal counsel for the Native American Rights Committee of ACLU National and investigate this to find out what's going on?" So we came up I, uh, Daniel, covers- Daniel,
0: I am sure that because of this, I mean, when Wounded Knee happened, and then I remember sashing Little Feather accepting a Marlon Brando's Oscar for because yes, he didn't right. want to go there, he was helping the Indian. I presume you may have met Mar Marlon, but it would oh, seem sure. to me, yep, I have, th- I have, yeah, that got, that got an enormous amount of attention, but the story you are telling now is more horrifying then then even wounded me why won't, why isn't this story being told on 60 minutes
1: well the the, the uh, one one of the, the challenges is is that the the corruption of the republican party has been as of course now been completely overwhelmed by donald trump coming in he's a he's a kind of generic uh, problem unto himself He's more than just simple corruption, more than just simple manipulation of federal funds to put them in as a secret way of funding uh, right-wing Republicans. He's a, he's a complete maniac, you know, and he's completely out of control. He's a, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's completely incompetent, uh, and he, is, he has come into office, and he overshadows all of the other more minor conspiracies going on. You hear them say on MSNBC almost every night, Oh, look at this incredibly horrible thing that just happened. He just, for example, he just fired the secretary of state by issuing a tweet and not even telling him, you know, and, 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 and in this case, this issue gets totally overwhelmed by the fact that he's also fired the former head of the FBI because he's, he's, <laughs> yes. trying, and, and he's got an a, a, a adult uh, movie star, you know, or adult film movie star, you know, suing him about having a sexual affair which he's paid for $130,000 to keep quiet, and it's just one thing after another.
0: And so yeah, the, he still the, thinks kind of he's he standard. He, he thinks he's starring in The Apprentice still. I mean, it's just yeah, no, no. It, I, I say, so. The, the the
1: standard corruption cases like this, you know, just go, uh, you know, glimmering. They get kind of overwhelmed because each and every day there's some new completely horror story, a complete horror story about what he's done today. And so that these other issues get kind of gobbled up, just just like well, for example when we were doing when we were doing the Iran-Contra case, we had one of our sources testify in front of the Senate Select Committee on Terrorism and Narcotics. He was testifying in front of that committee, chaired by John Kerry, uh, that day, and he was he was telling about how they were smuggling uh, cocaine out of South America and that they were doing all of this stuff. And uh, that was the day that the that the shuttle blew up. And so that, that all of that testimony just got smothered by the fact that the shuttle blew up and that, therefore it was old news after two days. And it just because of the way that the news cycle works, if you don't hit it at exactly the right time at a, a particular lull in, in other stories, you can't get your story on. So that part of the challenge we have in doing the kind of cases that we do, from the Karen Silkwood case to the Iran-Contra case to the Three Mile Island case, all of this. Part of our part of our task, which Sarah addresses in, in the office, is how do you get that to fit into the news cycle, so that people can really
0: Let me ask you two questions. Would it be possible for you to get a hold of somebody like Ken Burns, who is supported strongly by the establishment, make him aware of what it is that you are trying to tell the world? Could this man not make the perfect documentary about what you are doing with the Lakota People's Law Project?
1: Well, there's there's a process going on right now. The the former uh, head of BBC, the Washington Bureau Chief for BBC, is in negotiations now with HBO and Showtime to try to have a major documentary done to deal with the 30th anniversary of Iran-Contra. That still remains one of the most extraordinary uh, scandals uh, over and above the the Watergate burglary, et cetera, you know, to expose this underbelly of there being this private, secret government, this whole shadow yes, government I remember, going on behind the scenes. I remember,
0: the I remember, I remember yeah. very well a woman so that, reporter. So that's a, story
1: that, a story that just absolutely needs to be told. So the, the the question is, you know, which of these stories is the preeminent story that needs to be told? So what we're doing is we're negotiating with Showtime now about doing a potential seven-season long uh, uh series uh sort of like homeland you know or game of Thrones,
2: oh to how actually wonderful present
1: during each 13 episode season one of the cases
0: to lay out oh the my gosh the daniel what a wonderful wonderful yeah. idea so, so, now so that's, right that's now, now r- right now right now where does the lakotas people law project stand when it comes to so- changing? the law about paying to have these children taken away and re-educated as whites.
1: Well, what we've done is we've, uh, under the Obama administration, we were able to get a law passed which gave the tribes, uh, that is a reservation, the right to set up their own own child and family services. They could get a $300,000 grant from the Department of Health and Human Services to prepare a program for setting up their own child and family services agency. And then once they got that grant, they would submit the proposal to to the Ho- Ho- Health and Human Services, and then they could get funding to set up their own program. The problem is we had this all set up and getting ready to do it for three of the major reservations, Standing Rock, uh, Pine Ridge, and Rosebud. And we were in the process of getting Cheyenne River, one of the, the fourth largest, Uh, reservation in the state of South Dakota prepared to set up its own when in fact all of a sudden everybody got totally astonished that Hillary Clinton did not win the election uh, because we would have been able to carry on right straight through with the programs that we'd set up to substitute for the state the tribes to be able to handle their own family services. But now Trump came in and Trump just by executive order has just cut in half all of the funds for the native american programs
0: oh, to help with their health programs
1: and everything so now what we're doing is we're holding fast because uh, you know the, everybody's trying to figure out how quickly we can get this guy out of office and get pence out of office as well and get the democrats to take over the house of representatives so that they can then then they can in fact select the speaker of the house and that is the third person in order if uh if both Trump and Pence get, get impeached, then the Speaker of the House of Representatives will take over as president. Uh, and so that's the scenario that's going on right now behind the scenes. So, well, what, so we're sort of treading water right now, keep, keeping these programs in place, waiting for the funding. But we've got, to, we've, got to get, we've got to get these two guys out of office before we can get anything to happen.
0: Now, in order for them to be impe- impeached, I mean, it's pr- it's impossible to impeach someone, I guess, for incompetence. But what would be the grounds? Well, there's, grounds a, there's for- a lot more
1: than there's a lot more than incompetence going on. You know, the old, the old saying is <laughs> yes. one would always rather be rather be accused of being a fool than a knave. You know, but he's a, he, these guys are involved in straight up full scale criminal activity. Well, you know, yeah, totally well, you know Mark,
0: Ma- Mark Twain said that it is easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. And we certainly have been fooled. I must tell you, Daniel, I can tell just from you have the same passion in your voice today and the same commitment that you have now at your age that you had when you were 32 years of age. That's just, right.
1: Oh, that's absolutely you, right. You know, you, that, you, that it, we've been blessed. We've been blessed with good health. And we just stay right at this. And as long as you get up every day feeling just exactly like you did when you were 32, you can do the same things you did when you were 32. Uh, you're
0: 32. You're absolutely right. There's feeling, no, nothing, can keep, nothing can keep you as youthful as rage. <laughs> there is a <laughs> lot well, to this, rage this is, at.
1: This is that, this is that we're, we're, we're not uh, raging. What we're doing is we're saying, look, we have a deeper and deeper commitment to the fundamental values that are expressed in the Constitution, the fundamental rights, the, uh, the social democracy. You know, these are things that we believe in. That's why I ended up being chief counsel for the United States Jesuit Order in Washington, D.C. Uh, the irony of it was is I was chief counsel for the United States Jesuit Order when Sarah was the national labor secretary for the National Organization for Women. So we formed uh, an alliance between uh, the Jesuit Order and the National Organization for Women to do the Karen Silkwood case, and we won, we must, won that uh, case. Must, and we won the I order. Must, uh, we won the order to stop all the construction of all new private nuclear power plants in the entire United States since 1979. You know that's how that's I, how I we must, stopped the I must tell of the power you,
0: Daniel, plants. those people who contacted me from Romania and Thailand—they are so absolutely right because many of them described you as a national treasure. And they just did not understand or comprehend why you weren't as popular in this country as Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or or anyone else. So I, I cannot thank you enough for being here. So I have a, a couple of questions. The first question would sure. be, because we're going to have to say goodbye in a moment. Sure, Would you come back in again in a, a month or two? Because I would like to spend the whole hour with you doing an update on what you're doing and then to get deeper and deeper into the assassination because by that time i would have wanted you to look at this documentary that oh, sure. Deep, sure. the uh, best say it's the definitive film so i will send that yeah. to you where can sure. people go to get your book the people's advocate and read about what you're doing with the uh Lakota People's Law Project.
1: Well, they, 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 just, they just go to uh, the Romero Institute. It's named after Oscar Romero, that's just been now made a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. It's the Romero Institute.org. Uh, it's simple. Romero, Romero Institute.org. Or you can go to LakotaLaw.org. The Lakota Law Office is one of our wholly integrated auxiliaries of the Romero Institute. So you can go to either the romeroinstitute.org or to lakotalaw.org, and you can get a copy of the book there. You can find out all the things that we're doing. And in addition to doing the Lakota case and the other thing, we've now gotten the, the Catholic Church in California, uh, the, the Middle District of California, to agree to put solar panels on all of the Catholic Churches, in all of their Catholic high schools throughout the entire middle middle part of the state, so we're going to do that all through California to get all of the churches and synagogues to put uh, to put solar panels on all their churches uh, in their schools and hopefully set up free electric charging stations for electric cars uh, and set up completely non-polluting uh, sources of energy and take all of the clients of the Pacific Gas and Electric Corporation away from them. So, oh. so that you can find out all about that stuff on our on our website we've got a green power project at the, at the romero institute and the lakota people's law office so you can go to either one of those sites romero, romeroinstitute.org or lakotalaw.org and find out all about it and get a copy of the book
0: well again again daniel thank you thank you so much you are indeed an absolute treasure thank everybody at your your office for for making it easier for us to get a hold of you and have you on the show. And I look forward to talking to you again. We'll be right back with Joe Satilli.
2: Great music from all the greatest performers from sunup to sundown. How do you keep the music playing? All night, the mysteries of UFOs, conspiracy theories, and the true story
0: of Las Vegas that has never been told.
1: There are three ways to listen to KIYQ. Go to the TuneIn amp. Just search for KIYQ. Or go to www.kiyq.org. Listen from any telephone. Call 605-477-2857. That's 605-477-2857. Long distance charges may apply.
2: KIYQ 107.1. Hi, I'm Richard
1: Bowser. This is the great BBS Radio.
2: Thank you for that smile upon your face. Oh,
0: sunny. Hi, this is John Barber. You may remember me as the co-host, producer, and creator of Real People, America's First Reality Show, or most recently as the writer-director of what's been called the Definitive Documentary on JFK's murder, The Last Word on the Assassination. Now I'm doing a show every other Monday from 5 to 6 Pacific Time on BBS. You'll hear provocative views, unreported news, and film reviews from me with outstanding guests and you. Join me on John Barber's World. Hello, this is John Barber telling you about the long-running hit TV series Criminal Minds, now in its 13th year. Criminal Minds explores the work of talented FBI profilers who seek to unravel crime cases through behavioral profiling. Follow the efforts and lives of these elite profilers as they analyze the nation's most dangerous criminal minds in an effort to anticipate their next moves before they strike again. Criminal Minds airs Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 central. A must-see. Don't miss it. Bye now.
2: You're listening to BBS Radio. If it's not mainstream, it's on bbsradio.com.
0: Those of you who have an ongoing interest in the JFK assassination might want to know about this. TV producer John Barber, he put together a dream team of JFK researchers, including coast regular Jim Mars and uh, world-class JFK writers Dick Russell and Joan Mellon. They all got together at UNLV in front of a live audience. They had a screening of Barber's terrific and I'd say historic film based on interviews with uh, prosecutor Jim Garrison of New Orleans. And then after the film was shown, the experts all talked about the latest JFK theories and evidence. It's now out on a DVD. Terrific stuff. I'm George Knack, Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to John Barber's World from uh, live from Las Vegas Nevada and probably more alive tonight than many nights because Daniel Sheehan was just absolutely wonderful and when we when it, when he comes back in about 6 or 8 weeks he's going to have a couple of special surprises for you but the information that he has and knows about concerning the assassination of President John Kennedy he has no peer when it comes to that kind of information. I mean, I have a lot of knowledge about Jim Garrison, which is reflected in the two films that I've done about Mr. Mr. Garrison. So look forward to that. And again, it, I love doing this show because I get to talk to Joe Satilli and we get to go over his magnificent news vandal, which is I think there are two great, daily newsletters that go out every day, and Joe's is by far one of those two. It's one of the best. Joe, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: Oh, kind of exhausted after today's uh, barrage about Cambridge Analytica.
0: <laughs> what on earth is Cambridge Analytica? I mean, it you know, I, I, it's I, it just beyond me.
2: Explain it. Okay. So, <clears throat> They are using psychologically um, modulated data culled from Facebook in particular, but other sources, but Facebook in particular, it looks like up to 50 million uh, people's data was culled by them. And what they do is they come up with psychological profiles of each individual, or at least they come up with really, really small target groups based on affinities, but really based on fears. And so what they do is they take all of this information that they've gathered through Facebook to come up with a profile of what your deepest fears are, and then they micro-target you with political ads to get you to act on those fears so that you either vote for candidate A or against candidate B. Wow. So wow. this is this is psychological manipulation uh, on the... Um, uh, on the the smallest possible level, so instead of, you know, here's an ad and it's, you know, glowing, you know, sepia tone stuff about the candidate with their family and how they love American values. No, we know that you are afraid of Hispanic immigrants because of things you've liked or not liked on Facebook. So we're going to target you with ads saying that MS-13 is coming to rape your wife tomorrow if you don't vote for Trump.
0: Oh my God! Well, quick question: What did you think about uh, Daniel's talking about the fact that evidently uh, there there are a lot of folks working to get Trump and Pence out of office? Yeah. Um, well, no,
2: they're, they're, no, there's there's no doubt. I mean, there. This is the thing. I mean, we've talked about this before, John. I think there there are a couple ways to go. One is. There's the impeachment route that a lot of people are holding out hope for, which I do not hold out hope for because, as a matter of fact, the special counsel law is not like a special prosecutor. The special counsel's uh, findings do not necessarily have to become public. That's actually up in the air how much of that will actually end up in the public domain. This is not like Lawrence Walsh with Iran-Contra so, uh-huh. or, the, or the STAR investigation <clears throat> because that law lapsed years ago. So this is something quite different under the auspices of the DOJ, and that information can be can be kept. And I actually think that impeachment is not really a politically satisfactory way to go because a, an impeachment process would really turn Trump and Trumpism into a, pol- a movement based in political martyrdom as opposed wow. to an electoral defeat, which I think would be a more thoroughgoing way – to try and stem the tide of the corruption that is associated with his uh, administration. On the on the flip side, though, I think there's an irony in the Mueller investigation because he is going into things like Deutsche Bank and Deutsche Bank's money laundering. He's going into the money laundering associated with the Trump campaign. He's going into a, a number of different areas. Which and look, if you look at Manafort, who has been doing what he is doing, accused of doing now, he has been doing since the Reagan administration, which is you know, he was in, There was a thing called the Bank and Credit of Commerce International, BCCI scandal, in which a guy named Albert Hakeem and others were involved in basically funding al-Qaeda when al-Qaeda became al-Qaeda after the Mujahideen had defeated the Soviet Union. And it was a big money laundering thing, slush funds and weapons and weapons that actually cluster bombs that ended up in Iraq and so on. And Manafort was hired by... By Pakistanis to represent him in Washington D.C. to try and stop the investigation, so this kind of K Street corruption, ironically, is something that is being targeted by Mueller. And wouldn't it be funny if he, if Mueller ended up draining the swamp more than Trump ever could, even though we never really thought he would, did we? <laughs> I mean, he is, he is, he is the ultimate swamp thing. So
0: that that is that is that is funny. I must tell you, I was I was stunned when when we originally booked Daniel to be on a couple of weeks ago. The numbers of people that sent me emails or Facebook messages from around the world lauding lauding him and his work. I mean, that, that's just terrific. That's one of the great things, I guess, about computers and Facebook and and all of the rest of it. So, well, let's you know. just
2: say this right now: you listen to Daniel. She in here, and what you realize is, is that he is the avatar of everything we associate with the positive energy of the '60s.
0: You, and, you know that's well said. That is very well said.
2: And it's a, it's a, it's an energy that faded away, I think, understandably in the '70s because of the combination of the bad trip of Vietnam and I think the the coming of cocaine, actually, and by the 80s, you know, you vote for Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, that the 80, 1980 election was really the end of that idealism. When baby boomers decided, you know, let's let's just buy a pair of Nikes and and get a Porsche, and get a house, and settle down. You know, Steely Dan once sang in a song about. The 60s, all those day glow freaks, they used to paint their face, they've joined the human race, and some things will never change. Well, <laughs> one thing that never changed was Daniel Sheehan because he did not sell out and he kept the faith with the kind of activism that was really driving change in the 60s and would have driven change even further had three of its leading lights been not uh, murdered um, under obviously suspicious circumstances.
0: You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely and totally right. But in in your news vandal today, there are so many interesting things to talk about. What do you think is the most interesting aside from the Cambridge analytics?
2: Well, it, it does come back to the Cambridge Analytica thing in a way. But the first story from the New York Review of Books is called Beware the Big Five. And the Big Five are the big five. Tech companies, you know Google and Amazon and Facebook, and it's funny that we've spent a lot of time since Edward Snowden talking about the Five Eyes spying regime. Those are the that's that's United States, United Kingdom, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. This group of of surveillance group that that is really run through the NSA and the GHQ in Britain, and is basically collecting data on everybody. And we've been sp- spent a lot of time on that when really what we've done is willingly walked into a, a privately held matrix surveillance under the auspices of Google and Facebook in particular, but Amazon's a big part of it as well. And this, this story in the New York Review of Books points out that many of these companies actually got their technologies from DARPA. From, from the Defense Department, from the CIA's Venture Capitalist Fund, because the CIA has a Venture Capitalist Fund. And so basically, we as, a, as American citizens, through our tax dollars, have funded the creation of many of the technologies that have been handed over to the private sector and now formulates the greatest surveillance matrix in the history of mankind, one that is now being weaponized by companies like Cambridge Analytica to manipulate us, and so we're actually talking about 1984 in ways that we did not expect. It was sort of like a dystopian, semi-communist kind of totalitarian state. Yeah,
0: yes, yes, when exactly. really what it, it turns
2: out to be is a fully privatized, heavily monetized, incredibly profitable surveillance matrix and matrix and propaganda matrix that we have willingly walked into because of all the shiny objects that we get to share on Facebook. Well, what is so interesting is that you point out that the Department of Defense
0: uses uh, our tax dollars and then gives to private corporations funding to help them develop this, you know. But this, I heard, uh, remember when Art Bell used to have his show on radio? Sure, yeah, sure. You had a guy, I can't, oh gosh, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy said the same thing that you're saying about the crash at at, at Roswell of supposedly the UFO oh that crash there that, that all of these technologies that were discovered from this crash were developed by the department of defense and then turned over to private corporations i don't know how true that is about the ufo thing but it certainly re- is reflected in what you're saying and revealing right now but uh, uh the Cambridge Analytics anyway our time is up I'm really sad to say that gosh I just love talking to Joe anyway Joe
2: where do people hear you
0: next uh
2: well uh I'll be on with you in two weeks I'll be on with Ocell- uh with with Ocelli in a couple what next month and uh hopefully soon I I'm thinking about um Moving on to a podcast because my show on Crew has ended because Crew as a station finally came to an end after an 11-year run. But, uh, John, I'm always glad to talk with you, and it was great being able to hear Daniel Sheehan. Thank you for that.
0: Well, thank you for everything, and uh, I loved your show before, the one on the public radio station that went on there. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. Um, As Ed Murray used to say, good luck, good night. Sunny, 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 sunny I love you